Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics, and not the other way around. On January 6th, 2021, a violent mob stormed the U.S. Capitol, seeking to disrupt the certification of the 2020 presidential election. Five people were killed, and 140 members of the Capitol Police were injured in the worst attack on the U.S. Capitol since the War of 1812. My guest on this episode of Soul of the Nation, Congressman Jamie Raskin, is at the center of the fight to investigate and pursue accountability for the January 6th insurrection. Just one day after burying his beloved son, Tommy, Congressman Raskin hid inside the U.S. Capitol on January 6th as the violent mob ransacked the Capitol. Despite the fresh wound of his son's death, Raskin served as the lead House manager in the second impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump, which ended with a 57-43 vote to convict the president, which wasn't enough. Congressman Raskin now serves on the select committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, which plans to hold public hearings this June and publish a report on its findings this fall. This episode of Soul of a Nation features a conversation I held with Representative Raskin at Georgetown University in April. That conversation made international news with extensive coverage from NBC, CBS, Esquire magazine, and even Rolling Stone. As you listen to this conversation, I think you'll understand why it got so much media attention. We spoke about the trauma of the January 6th insurrection holding President Trump accountable, and why he expects his committee's investigations to blow the roof off the House when they go public. Let's take the following topics tonight in this order. First, the January 6th Select Committee to help us understand what's going on and what's going to go on. Second, the threats to democracy. Then this whole question, when I thought of you and what you're doing and your personal trauma in these days, the word resilience came to mind. We're going to need resiliency in our democracy and our lives. And I think you can speak to how, what kind of resiliency can save democracy. So you said January 6th was not the final act, but perhaps the prologue to a titanic struggle between democracy and violent authoritarianism in America. Could you provide an overview of the committee, what you're doing? You said, tell the whole story of the violent insurrection and attempted coup. What are the maybe puzzle pieces you're still looking for? And what can we expect in the weeks and months ahead? Well, the the committee really wasn't supposed to exist because the Democrats and Republicans had negotiated for an independent outside Mm -hmm. commission modeled after the 9-11 commission Mm -hmm. with no elected officials on it, no members of Congress. All formers. Yes. I mean, it, it was you know, looking for people who had been attorney generals in the past or secretaries of mm-hmm. state or, you know, distinguished figures in their own right. And I did have a sinking feeling that if it didn't end up with an outside commission, I was going to end up being on it, you know, having led, you know, the impeachment effort in the Senate. So the Republican negotiator, John Katko from upstate New York, asked for a committee of exactly even appointees, five Republicans, five Democrats, mm-hmm equal subpoena power, equal staffing power. And the Democrats agreed to it. Benny Thompson agreed to it. 
And so we were all very excited. We thought this would be a commission that would have tremendous bipartisan support across the country, and it would do its job. And then it got vetoed by the fourth branch of government, uh, Donald Trump, who uh, told the GOP he didn't want any investigation at all of the insurrection against us. And amazingly, the minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, agreed, and they pulled the plug on the whole thing. And that's how we ended up with the bipartisan select committee within the House of Representatives. So we've done our best to create a very strong, powerful, focused committee. We've got a chair, Benny Thompson, who's a Democrat. We've got a vice chair, Liz Cheney, a Republican from Wyoming. It's bipartisan. In fact, it's the most bipartisan committee I've ever been on because we don't spend the first hour or the entire hearings and meetings consumed with partisan polemics and denunciation and mutual recrimination, which is basically what goes on in most of the committees. So that's how we're structured, and we're going to have hearings in June, and we're hoping to have our report out by the end of the summer or you know, early fall. Um, and we're going to do what we've been asked to do by House Resolution 503, which is to define the events of January 6th, the causes behind them, and then to set forth recommendations for legislative strategies to prevent future coups and insurrections and subversion of American constitutional democracy. So that's what we're going to do. I mean, if you're, are you asking me to tell you a little bit of what we found so yeah, far? Yeah, sure. I mean, I would encourage people, you're going to have to watch the hearings because the hearings will tell a story that will really blow the roof off the house because mm-hmm. it is a story of the most heinous and dastardly political offense ever organized by a president and his uh, followers and his entourage in the history of the United States. No president has ever come close to doing what happened here in terms of trying to organize an inside coup Mm -hmm. to overthrow an election and bypass the constitutional order. And then also use a violent insurrection made up of domestic violent extremist groups, white nationalist, racist, fascist groups in order to support the coup. And that will be the story that people hear. And so, you know, think of what happened on that day in kind of three circles of sedition. There was a mass protest called for wild purposes, as the president put it, Mm -hmm. of tens of thousands of people that turned into a mob riot, which injured more than 150 officers who ended up with broken jaws, broken necks, broken shoulders, arms, lost fingers, broken legs, crushed toes, traumatic brain injuries, concussions, and post-traumatic stress syndrome in um, dozens of people. I mean, I have constituents who are officers who Mm. go in for physical therapy twice a week and mental therapy once a week right now. You know, that was the outside ring. And then the middle ring was the ring of the insurrection, the domestic violent extremist groups like the Proud Boys, who Donald Trump had told to stand back and stand by at the first presidential debate, the Oath Keepers, the three percenters who've been charged with seditious conspiracy, which means conspiracy to overthrow the government, and the QAnon networks, the militia groups, the Ku Klux Klan, the Aryan Nations, white Christian nationalist groups, as you were saying. And then the scariest ring, that was not the scariest ring, the scariest ring was the ring of the coup. The insurrectionists were in charge of attacking our officers, smashing our windows, breaking down our doors, interrupting the peaceful transfer of power and shutting down the counting of electoral college votes. But the ring of the coup, and I know it's a strange word to use in American political parlance because we don't have a lot of experience with coups in American history, and this was not a coup directed 
at the president. It was a coup by directed by the president mm-hmm. against the vice president right. and against the Congress. And, you know, Donald Trump simply did not accept the results of the election. He was preparing his followers not to accept the result of the election. He was going around the country saying, the only way I can lose is if the election is stolen. And we know that, that this was false because more than 60 federal and state judges all across the land, including eight judges nominated to the bench by Donald Trump, rejected every allegation of electoral fraud and corruption advanced by them. But they proceeded to try five or six different strategies to overthrow Joe Biden's majority in the Electoral College. And then finally, it all came down to January 6th. And the basic idea was, we're going to get Pence to assert unilateral, extra-constitutional, unlawful powers to reject and repudiate Electoral College votes being sent in by the state, specifically Arizona, Georgia, and Pennsylvania. Why? Well, they would lower Biden's total from 306 to below 270. And by the way, the Electoral College split in 2020, 306 to 232, was the exact same margin that Trump had in 2016, which he had declared a landslide in 2016. But in any event, they were going to try to get Biden's vote total below 270 to activate the 12th Amendment which says if nobody has a majority in electoral college, then the contest shifts immediately to the House of Representatives for a so-called contingent election, where the House decides who will be president. And you say, well, why would they want Speaker Pelosi and the Democratic majority to decide who's going to be president? They understood under the 12th Amendment that we're not voting one member, one vote. We're voting one state, one vote. And so there were 27 state delegations controlled by the GOP, 22 that the Democrats have, and Pennsylvania, which is split nine to nine, would have been to the sidelines. So even had they suffered the defection of uh, my new best friend in Congress, the at-large representative from Wyoming, uh, Liz Cheney, they still would have had 26 votes in the bag to get the majority to seize the presidency. And at that point, they likely would have invoked the Insurrection Act as Trump's disgraced former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, was urging him to do that. And then he would have declared martial law. Because there would have been protests if that had happened. There would have been mass protests. But also, you know, the the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers were running around Washington saying, Antifa, where are you, Antifa? They clearly were looking for somebody to fight to create some visual images of this just being some kind of showdown between left and right. And it would have been Donald Trump's opportunity to come in and be the hero. It would have been his Reichstag moment. I'm going to save you from the insurrectionary chaos I unleashed against you. And, you know, even to this day, they say Nancy Pelosi couldn't keep order in the House. She, you know, instead of denouncing this violent insurrection, totally unprecedented in American history with tens of thousands of people Mm -hmm. besieging police officers and violent armed mobs smashing our doors and windows, they say Nancy Pelosi messed up because she wasn't, right. she wasn't ready for it. And that's what they were prepared to do. You know, Donald Trump would return as the conquering hero, just ignoring the seven and a half million vote margin that Biden had in his victory in Electoral College. I wrote down this quote, it could blow the roof off the house. Yeah. And you're describing now how that could have happened. I recall in the book, you have a, a fascinating narrative when you and your chief of staff were driving in that day, how crazy it was on the outside, the language, the threats, the fingers in the air, the the, the attacking people, but it seemed like crazy outside. You were focused on the inside battle. You were going to say you weren't prepared that all of that would come into the inside. We want to watch the hearings very deliberately 
because we're getting bits and pieces from you and other members. Unpack what you just said about the rings, the three rings, because you say some of that when you report this in the press. It's very important. Also, how rising fascism likes conflict. That's their goal to create conflict and then come in and take over. Name the three rings. And my big question is, what have you found about the coordination between the three rings? Were they connected, organized, and how so? They were, and I think we will be uh, offering evidence to that fact, but they were coordinated most tightly by Trump and his inner circle, the inner entourage around him. And of course, that is the place we've had the most difficulty. I mean, we, we've had more than 800 witnesses come forward mm. to tell us what they saw, what they heard, what was going on with them. And these are witnesses on all sides. I mean, these are officers and these are rioters. These are extremist insurrectionists. Mm -hmm. These are White House employees. But the closer you get to Trump, the more they refuse to testify. And why isn't that enough alone to create a scandal in the country that we have a guy you know, like Mark Meadows, who was the chief of staff to the president of the United States, who now refuses to testify? Or Steve Bannon, who wasn't even an employee of the White House, but is trying to assert executive somebody privilege. else's executive privilege. I mean, it's just the most fraudulent enterprise in the world. We've got a class of people who really think they're above the law mm -hmm. and they're beyond the law. It's a really dangerous thing for a democracy to have a class of people feel so entitled by their power, their wealth, that they can just defy the rule of law like this. And you call Trump and the associates the center ring. The inside deal was to get Pence to play along with him. And Pence, right. who, you know, to my mind, I'll lay my partisan cards on the table, you know, for four years demonstrated nothing other than mm -hmm. invertebrate sycophancy and obsequiousness <laughs> to Donald Trump. On that day, he lived up to his oath of office and yeah. he was a constitutional patriot. And he was. And they were chanting, I heard them chanting, hang Mike Pence. Yeah hang Mike Pence. And they meant it. They'd set up a scaffold outside yeah. and, a, and a noose outside. So when his Secret Service agents, including one of them who had the nuclear football with him, were chased out by these neo-fascists and they ran down to some still undisclosed mysterious place in, hmm. in the Capitol, he uttered what I think are the six most chilling words of this entire thing I've seen so far. Hmm. He said, I'm not getting in that car. Because the Secret Service agents, who presumably are reporting to Trump's Secret Service agents, were trying to hmm. spirit him off of the campus. And he said, I'm not getting in that car until we count the Electoral College votes. He knew exactly hmm. what this inside coup they had planned for was going to do. And by the way, the political scientists have a name for this kind of coup. Most coups, the ones we think of are the military trying to overthrow a president. The political scientists call this a self-coup, where you have an incumbent president who tries to overthrow the constitutional order by defeating the electoral process in order to prevent an election defeat. And there are examples of other people who've engaged in these kinds of self-coups. So you'll tell this story in your hearings. You can't tell us all that now, I know, but you're saying you found evidence that these three rings are connected, are, are intertwined. We're, we're intertwined. They were most intertwined, of course, in the mind of Donald Trump, right. who was pulling the strings of essentially all of them. I mean, he was playing to his crowds and mm -hmm. turning them into a mob with the social media and with his speeches where he said, you know, when there's cheating involved, all the rules are off. You can play by very different rules and you got to fight and you got to fight like hell or you're not going to have a country anymore and so on. I mean, he was, we had robust bipartisan, bicameral majorities 
find as a matter of legislative fact that he had engaged in an incitement to violent insurrection in the union. He beat the constitutional odds for a conviction, but that, that was the most sweeping bipartisan Senate vote in a presidential impeachment in history. There have only been four of them. Andrew Johnson, Bill Clinton for doing you know what, and uh, Trump won and Trump two. And we, it was a 57 to 43 vote finding that he'd engaged in it. So he, you know, he, he feels somehow vindicated that only 57 of 100 senators found that he was the first president in the history of the United States to try to overthrow his own government. Great. So in so, terms of what we're watching for, how these are intertwined yes. is going to be very important to look for and watch for. This outside ring of the protests, yeah. social media. The insurrection was used as a way yeah. to delay and prolong the proceedings along with the challenges to particular state electoral college votes right. being cast in order to intensify the pressure on Mike Pence. They thought that at a certain point he would break. And once he broke and returned those electoral college votes, they could swing it through the 12th Amendment into a contingent election, and they would have run it like a political convention. They would have had you know, each state get up and cast their vote. And they'd have Trump. had the majority. Yeah. And, they, and at that point, it's anybody's guess what could have happened. Martial law, civil war, you know, the, the beginning of authoritarianism. I mean, this judge that you cited, Judge Carter from California, said that it probably would have been the end, the permanent end of the peaceful transfer of power in America. So I hope we're hearing here what a close call we had here, a very close call, and agreeing with your colorful language on Pence. In hindsight, I was surprised that he didn't succumb to pressure. And you said his oath of office he upheld, which also happened when Trump tried to pressure state leaders in Georgia. Yeah. So the oath of office kept Republicans, some Republicans, from going along with this coup. You know, there are real constitutional heroes and patriots throughout yeah. this story because, you know, the first thing they, they did after all of the cases flopped was to try to get Republican legislative leaders in state legislatures simply to exercise their power under Article 2 to nullify the popular vote and cast their electoral college votes for Trump. And they refused to do it right. for different reasons. I mean, some thought that it was politically toxic. It was too hot and others just thought it was the wrong thing to do. So then... Trump decided what we'll do is we'll intimidate and browbeat the election officials to get them to change the vote totals. And we found dozens of examples of them right. trying to do this in the swing states. But most infamously, of course, with Georgia, with Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who taped the call. Yeah. And Trump said to him, all we're asking for, all I want is for you to find me 11,781 votes. I mean, I'm a politician. All I want is for you to find me 11,781 yeah. votes. I mean, that's not Donald Trump trying to stop election fraud. That's Donald Trump trying to commit election fraud and getting caught red-handed doing it, which is why the Forsyth County prosecutors are mm. <laughs> investigating that case. That phrase, find me the votes, says it all. Just find me the votes. I mean, yeah. it, it makes a mockery out of democracy. I yeah. hope that gets people's hackles up. So, you know, th that failed. Then, you know, the next step was... Michael Flynn telling people, let's just have the military go and seize the election machinery, yeah. <laughs> and then the military can rerun the election. And all of you guys know that part of the Constitution, which allows the military just to go seize the election machines and rerun the election, right? They didn't care about that. You know, he wanted to just assert emergency powers like we're, you know, a banana republic dictatorship, which is basically what they had planned for us. And so that's why it all came down 
to January 6th. I want people to pay attention to what's going on here because it's as close to fascism as I ever want my country to come to again. So here's what Michael Luddig, who's a conservative lawyer. Judge, uh, yeah. Judge, now lawyer, yeah. Yeah, now judge. Here's what he said about this effort to decertify. He said, at the moment, there is no other way to say it. This is the clearest and most present danger to democracy. Well, it is. Uh, now, the danger for us, of course, on our committee is that we fight the last battle. I mean, I don't think the way we're going to lose democracy in 2024 is to have Vice President Harris unilaterally reject electoral college votes. I don't think anybody thinks that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But what's, what is going to happen is there are dozens of voter suppression statutes that have been passed around the country. Georgia's got a new statute that makes it a crime to pass somebody a bottle of water right. while they're waiting in line to vote. Yeah. And they're trying to repeal early voting. They're trying to repeal weekend voting. They're trying to undo mail-in balloting. They're trying to create the mechanisms for election subversion where if they don't suppress enough votes and they still lose it, then there are enough new statutes out there where they can claim something went wrong. And then you appeal it not to a bipartisan board or a court, but you appeal it to the governor or you appeal it to a state legislature. That's what they're trying to do in a whole bunch of states right now. They're trying to create a structure where they can't lose because of the mechanisms of appeal. So, you know, this is something that's going to have to be fought all over the country. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the good news is the vast majority of Americans reject this. The vast majority of Americans believe that the truth must be the condition of democracy. They don't believe in the big lie. They don't believe in conspiracy theory and propaganda and disinformation. But it's a race. It's a race between the majority will and people's belief in democracy against a bag of tricks that includes voter suppression, the use of the filibuster, which is the most anti-democratic implement they've got to shut down all of our voting rights legislation. We passed the For the People Act in the House to get rid of gerrymandering, to protect the right to vote. And we just ran into a brick wall with the filibuster and the hold in the Senate. So they've got voter suppression. They've got the filibuster. They've got the gerrymandering of our districts, which is overwhelmingly a partisan enterprise at this point. And then we've got really extreme right-wing judicial activism and court packing taking place. So uh, that's what we're up against. But I'm with, you know, John Dewey, who said the only solution to the ills of democracy is more democracy, because what's threatening us today is not democracy. It's all of these impediments to majority will. As we were talking before this session, I was recalling my home state of Michigan, where many of these laws are threatened to be passed. They're redrawing the lines for districts, gerrymandering. And our lead organizer, this is Faiths United United to Save Democracy. We're in 10 key states. I was telling you that our lead organizer there says in Michigan, if all of these laws pass, they'll move from 17 black legislators from Lansing to Washington, 17 to 5. 17 to 5. So they're redrawing the lines. And often this isn't getting the attention that it needs, the voter suppression laws, because people say one party is doing voter restriction, the other is against it, so it must be just partisan. And we've got to focus on how we get the attention of people about what, would you say, this is an effort to, in fact, turn back our democracy. How do we do that? How do we get- Well, yeah, I mean, the, the partisan thing is very difficult because this obviously goes way beyond political party. This is why I always reserve special praise 
for Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and Mitt Romney and those constitutional patriots who are Republicans who say this cannot be the organizing principle of the Republican Party, the big lie. But of course, it's not operating like a modern political party now. It's operating like an authoritarian religious or political cult of personality where Donald Trump dictates to everyone what they're going to believe. Mm -hmm. But it is amazing. I don't don't know that there's anything like it. Maybe the know-nothings, but it's very hard to think of any comparable experience in American history where an entire political party organizes itself around a lie about who won and lost an election. I mean, that's a pretty remarkable thing. I mean, my party just lost an election for governor of Virginia. And we were very unhappy about it because we think it was based on lies about mm-hmm. critical race theory and so on. But we didn't go and beat up a bunch of cops right. and smash them in the face with American flags and take over the Virginia state capitol. And much less did we go around lying about it. We said, okay, right. it didn't work out well for us. We'll be ready for them next time when they tell lies about mm-hmm. critical race theory. But the same thing you know, happened in 2016, where a million people came to Washington to protest because of Vladimir Putin's cyber sabotage and cyber subversion during the campaign and Donald Trump's, you know, rank misogyny and a million people gathered. But what did they do? They didn't yeah. commit violence. They protested. They, they put on pink hats and joined Indivisible, mm-hmm. you know, but that's a very different thing. This is a grave moment for American democracy. I think we have to understand the structural character of the problem. You have strong feelings about the Electoral College, which you called a haunted mansion starting in the basement with white supremacy. Now, there was, to me, quite something quite ironic about it. The mob of white supremacists, who I call them, who attacked the Capitol, trying to stop a process in the Electoral College that enshrined, has enshrined white supremacy in the country. So the Electoral College is skewed, is structured. Well, you, you got to understand the way that the Electoral College was intertwined with the Three-Fifths Clause when the country mm-hmm. started. Right. So... Of course, the Constitution did not create or protect the right to vote. It was left to the state legislatures. And, of course, the southern legislatures didn't give any African-Americans the right to vote. The overwhelming number of them, if not all of them, were were slaves at that point. And they were not given the right to vote, much less run for office or anything else. But for the purposes of census reapportionment and creating congressional delegations, the southern states were adamant that the slave population be counted for the purposes of defining the number of representatives that would be apportioned. And for these purposes, the northern states said, wait a second, you're not allowing these people to vote. You're treating them like property. They can't run for office. Why should they count at all for the purposes of reapportionment? And of course, the slave states were willing to walk over the whole thing, and they went back and forth, and finally they arrived at the infamous Three-Fifths Compromise. The irony, of course, is that today we think the Three-Fifths Compromise is such a pernicious and insidious statement because it's saying that an African-American is 60% of a person, but it was the most progressive forces who were saying, don't count the black population at all if you're not going to allow them to vote. And it was the most racist forces in the country saying for these purposes, they should count completely. But they settled at this 60% solution and it inflated the Southern delegations by more than a dozen members after the 1800 census and reapportionment Mm -hmm. took place. So then, of course, it translates from the number of members in the House delegation to the Electoral College, because as you know, the Electoral College 
number of a state is de defined by two for the US senators plus the number of representatives. So there were an extra dozen electoral college votes that came from the Southern states because of the three-fifths compromise. And that's why Thomas Jefferson, who for all of his other virtues, was the candidate of the slave states. And he was called at that point, Negro president, meaning not that he was sympathetic to the black population, but that he was elected by the votes of six or 700,000, well, really a million enslaved human beings who got treated like 600,000 citizens for these purposes. And you got to check out Gary Wills's great book on the subject called Negro President, which tells the whole mm. story. But it's part of the lost history of our country that people don't know. And that, of course, they want to make it a crime to teach because, uh, you know, it might hurt somebody's feelings. But really, that they don't want the real history of political white supremacy or violent white supremacy to be known in our country. And we've got to understand it because if we don't understand our past, there's no chance we're going to be able to get the future right. And the system... <laughs> which uh, we, I wish we had more time to talk about tonight from Electoral College to how st state legislatures are skewed to rural white populations, like in my home state of Michigan. And then you have these movements rising up based on resentment and hate. And Stephen Levitsky, who's the Harvard historian, who wrote the book How Democracies Die, says democratic backsliding begins at the ballot box. And he told me he talked to U.S. senators before the filibuster vote trying to explain, and they just didn't get it. They didn't seem to understand, as he said, that the House is on fire. Then Madeleine Albright, who you quoted, saying, fascism is not a political system, it's a tactic. So how are they using tactics and strategy? Well, I mean, just to complete the point on the Electoral College, it's obviously profoundly undemocratic. It's given us five popular vote losers in our history, including twice in this century, in 2000 and 2016. You know, never forget Hillary beat him by more than three million votes in 2016. It creates bizarre incentives because the whole general election comes down to seven or eight swing states because the vast majority of the right. country lives in safe red states or safe blue states. And it's right. not based on size. It's just based on the mere you know, arbitrariness of whether you have relatively similar numbers of Democrats and Republicans. But the, the real thing today is that the Electoral College has become a positive danger to right. the Republic, because if you have a strategic bad faith actor like Donald Trump out there, he can transform every nook and cranny in this antiquated Byzantine system into another opportunity to sabotage the democracy. The specific bad faith actor, you quoted Alexander Hamilton, the first Federalist paper, is saying he warned against an opportunistic demagogue unleashing a violent mob and primitive impulses against the Constitution. That's in the first Federalist paper. Right. The very first one. He, you know, that's why I said at the impeachment trial, Donald Trump doesn't know a lot about the founders, but they knew a lot about him. Well, and, but that's not history. That's happened now. What he warned against has happened now. Yes. So it's no longer history, it's what's happening now. So this bad faith actor, this demagogue, has unleashed this violence with what he called primitive impulses. How confident are you in the resilience of our constitutional system? Well, I still believe, despite everything that's happened since the 2020 election and with Donald Trump, that we are still, we have a very strong claim to being the world's greatest multiracial multi-ethnic, multi-religious constitutional democracy that ever existed. But that lives in the hearts of the people. 
because we've seen how fragile the institutions are. We can be overrun. Nobody can afford to be complacent at this moment. You know, Tocqueville said in Democracy in America, I don't know if that's a book anybody reads anymore, but there's a, there's a striking passage in there where, where Tocqueville says that voting rights in democracy in America are always either shrinking and shriveling away or they're expanding and they're growing. And we've been in a contractionary period. Uh, there's a, a war on people's voting rights. There's an attempt to shrink democracy taking place. And we've got to get back on the growth track. It's not enough to just defend nervously the structure we've got. We've got to look at why democracy has been languishing. I mean, you guys are sitting in a city where there are 713,000 taxpaying draftable American citizens who are not represented in their own national legislature, and you're the only people on earth who are in that situation, right? And so, uh, you know, we need statehood for uh, people in Washington. We need statehood for three and a half million disenfranchised American citizens in Puerto Rico. We need to restore voting rights to all the former prisoners, which I think 42 states have done, but we have seven or eight states that continue to disenfranchise people who've gotten out of prison and who have every other right restored to them except the right to vote. And that's got nothing to do with rehabilitation Mm -hmm. or reform. It's about voter suppression and strategic manipulation of the electorate. So we got to get back on the democracy growth path fast because it's real dangerous what's going on out there. The word resilience is what came to me from reading your book. And you got personal. And speaking of resilience, you say you're devoting your fight for democracy to your son, Tommy, who you lost on December. You and your wife, Sarah Bloom Raskin, described Tommy as somebody who possessed a perfect heart, a perfect soul, and a dazzling, radiant mind. And I feel like I've gotten to know him reading your amazing book. You also suffer from depression, a struggle that is all too common in the U.S. and around the world, and especially among students. And I'm hearing about this more and more on this campus from my students who are talking to each other about this, and it's a topic in an election conversation, including students who are listening to this, who are students anxious about the rise of fascism, the climate change, and gross economic inequality as your son that hurt him deeply personally and police violence, all the rest. How is the mental health crisis, and we have one, and the political crisis, how are they connected? Well, I, I think in, you know, just the way you described it, Jim, you know, in a, an authoritarian society, in a Putin kind of society, in an Al-Sisi society, the health of the population, especially the mental and emotional health of the population, is basically irrelevant If anything, a healthy population is a threat to the the power elites, to the people who run the society. In a democracy, we need everybody to be physically and mentally and emotionally healthy so we can govern ourselves. You know, democracy isn't just the Congress or the state legislature. I mean, it's county councils, it's city councils, it's town councils, it's school boards, it's student government, it's newspapers, it's the media, it's civic life. That's That's a real democracy. That's what Tocqueville saw. When he came here, you know, the three most important words of the Constitution are we the people. Mm -hmm. It's our democracy. So we need people to be healthy. And I believe, I don't know if you guys have read Christopher Wiley's um, book about working for Cambridge Analytica and Putin and Bannon and Trump in 2016. You got to read it because people tell me they're feeling depressed. And of course, everybody is on their own 
odyssey in terms of mental and emotional health, but a lot of people who don't have a clinical diagnosis are feeling depressed, sad, disenchanted, pessimistic. That is a strategy. Hmm. Read that book and see how there was a deliberate effort to use the social media to demoralize people, to isolate people. Hmm. They knew that they weren't going to get liberal college kids to vote for Donald Trump, but they could depress the hell out of them and make them feel like everything's hopeless and don't get involved in government and don't get involved in politics. And that's precisely what I hear. So when people tell me that now, I say, congratulations, because you are fulfilling Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump's most ardent dreams that they will activate the most unstable, fanatical people in the country. And we saw it in Charlottesville in 2017. And we saw them come back in full force on January 6, 2021. And they'll depress the hell of everybody else, even though we're talking about the vast majority of the population. Your generation should have a revolution against what Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin are trying to do to your society. And I know how depressed everybody is about climate change and about the inequalities and about police violence and so on. But this is your country, it's your future. So, you know, I think about my kids. I, Tommy was depressed, he had a struggle, but everybody's depression, everybody's anxiety exists in a social context. And the COVID-19 period was brutal. Donald Trump nearly turned us into a failed state. A failed state is a state that cannot deliver the basic goods of existence to its people. And in terms of public health, the most critical thing in a public health campaign is social cohesion. And they wrecked it. They destroyed it. They fed the public lies about COVID-19, conspiracy theories about COVID-19. They attacked the scientists. They ruined our prospects for defeating the disease. And Donald Trump's own COVID-19 coordinator, Dr. Deborah Burks, said that hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives unnecessarily because of the decisions that their administration made. So, you know, we lost Tommy on the last day of 2020, one of the bleakest, darkest, most depressing years of American history. And, you know, I wrote my book as a love letter to my son and as a love letter to my country. And we've, we've lost our son, but we don't want to lose our country too. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you'd like. Blessings for the soul of the nation. Thank you.